Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe. Uh, there's no Nick today. Uh, today I have with me Tom, who is a commissioned officer in the United States Army Armor Corps and random anonymous Twitter handle. Yeah, just a random, <laughs> random Twitter guy, Twitter personality. Um, and I know I actually, uh, today's Wednesday, I think, right? Um, yeah. I originally posted yesterday that we already did this, and we did. We actually spent, what, an hour and 10 minutes <laughs> was great, doing yeah. this, and it turned in complete trash because I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, minor technical minor technical issues. You got two tankers working on something. We're going to bust it. Yeah, and I couldn't even hit it with a hammer. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is the usual solution for us. Yeah. How's your, uh, how's your leave going so far? That's been fantastic. I, I mean, just the small joy of not being at work. Um, just a little background on me. So, as Joe said, I'm a active duty armor officer, uh, currently stationed at Fort Benning. A uh, little over six years in the army now. So, uh, I was a military history major in college. So, I remain a giant dweeb when it comes to history, especially tank history. So, that's what I'm here to talk about today: is a little piece of tank history. And the piece of tank history that pretty much everybody seems to hold on to with like a death grasp for reasons that I'm not entirely sure of. Um, so we're talking about the hilariously stupid German tanks of World War II. Yeah, so uh, for some reason, like the German Armor Corps, the Panzer Corps in World War II is kind of like held up as a shiny example of like the greatest things that armor could ever do. Uh, the center of the Blitzkrieg and like German tanks are the best tanks and the Germans had the best equipment in World War II. And in reality... They were pretty outclassed by a lot of other equipment, and as we're going to talk about today, is just the initial designs for the tanks the Germans had went from like reasonable to batshit insane over the course of the war. I I found it really nice that um, lesser known defense contractors like Acme and Wiley Coyote get their you know crack at it there at the end. It really was. It felt like Wiley Coyote had like a position in like the armor like the armaments ministry in Nazi Germany and just was able to pass along just crazier and crazier ideas. I got signed off on because Hitler is a moron. <laughs> is there like, I know in my units and it's probably changed since I've been out cause I've been out too long. Um, there was like an S shop that they just stuffed everybody in that really sucked at their jobs. And, uh, like to, cause obviously you can't fire people. And I guess the German military's version of firing people is just shooting them. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's wasteful. Uh, so they're like, yeah, let's just stuff him in the armaments ministry with Albert Schwer and uh, make him come up with fucking coyote rockets and shit. And there had to be like, there had to be like a couple of guys that are just so incompetent that they stuck him up in in this ministry and they just for some reason they would come up with ideas. I mean, come to think of it, that guy was kind of a hero. Whoever came up with like these terrible ideas for Hitler to sign off on, and you'll <laughs> you'll see over the course of this podcast like how insane these ideas got. Um, so, so I guess we little, can start with the normal ones and yeah, fly so off the rails. I'll do like a, a brief overview of German tank development. So as you know, like World War One was the advent of the tank, and it was these slow, big metal boxes that would slowly drive towards the enemy and then drive over a, a trench. And the whole idea was direct infantry support. Um, and so kind of interwar development of tanks across the world carried along the similar paths. Like a lot of the tanks that were made were small ones. They'd be considered tankettes by... Uh, later definitions just because of how light they were and, and they were lightly armored they had uh, typically machine guns or maybe like a really small cannon in them uh, to provide that direct infantry support so 
a lot of the experience in how tanks were being used after World War One came from uh, the Russo-Japanese War and then the uh, Spanish Civil War after that. So the early tanks the Germans developed were the Panzer I and Panzer II. So like the full nomenclature of it was a Panzerkampfwagen, which is armored fighting vehicle. And I'm going to uh, assume that is one giant compound word. Oh, yeah. And so it's all slammed <laughs> up together. That's, that's one year of German in college. It gives me the ability to sound like I kind of know how to speak German. I really don't. I learned absolutely nothing. But I can do an okay Gestapo accent. Uh, which comes is in handy these days. Yeah, it's hilarious when I question soldiers. They find it gold. <laughs> I doesn't like it, but that's yeah, whatever. But yeah, so like the Panzer One uh, was tiny. It weighed 5.4 tons. Uh, with only 13 feet long, uh, five feet high, and had uh, two machine guns in the turret. So it was kind of like the very early tanks that had machine guns in the, in the female uh, design for that direct infantry support role. So the Panzer I was incredibly light, and it was designed, um, basically, they, they started designing it in 32, started production in 34, and the idea was the tanks were to be used for training. So... Following World War One and with the Treaty of Versailles, there was a lot of limits on what the Germans could actually do. Uh, they were actually prohibited from designing, producing tanks. But with the rise of power of the Nazis and the world order kind of allowing the Germans to get away with a few things, uh, they started developing these tanks. So they were never really meant to be used in combat. And the same goes for the Panzer II. The Panzer II was a little bit larger. Um, and it, it was 8.9 tons, 6 feet tall. Actually, had a three-man crew and had a, a, a small cannon, like a it was a two-centimeter uh, cannon mounted in the turret. And these were meant for direct infantry support. They're very small. They weren't meant for combat necessarily, but they're actually used during the Spanish Civil War, which is where the Germans learned a lot from basically giving these tanks to the fascists to kill communists and you know civilians and other people during the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish As Civil War was pretty kill. handy. I mean. Uh, we go to N we go to NTC and uh, JRTC. They just invaded Spain. As they're exactly. <laughs> Hand off your equipment to other guys and just take some notes on how effective it is at shooting peasants. And we we do that with uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah, about the same amount of shooting peasants. I don't I don't know. I'm not an expert on those things. But... Mostly cluster yeah, so... bombing of peasants. It's a little different, yeah, I guess. <laughs> little cluster munitions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, continued development led to the Panzer III and the Panzer IV. And, like, the Panzer IV was kind of the, the workhorse of the German army. Um, pretty uh, typical medium tank that saw a lot of use for a majority of the war. Uh, the Panzer IV was 25 tons. It had a crew of five. So you had the commander, gunner, loader, driver, and then a radio operator slash bow machine gunner. And like the Panzer III's and the Panzer IV's were the common tanks that you saw in the early days of the war. So those are the tanks that actually rolled over Poland and rolled over France. Um, and how did they measure up in comparison um, to what they were facing at the time? So typical, I mean, we, we joke about the Poles having mounted cavalry that would charge the tanks, which didn't really happen. I know you're telling me about it before we recorded this. You're talking about something to do with the... Uh, yeah, it was, um, so the Poles at the time were, I mean, they were completely outmatched, so you got to give them credit for even wanting to fight, um, but they were using early 19th century, late 18th century um, Dragoon tactics, where, uh, sure, it looks like they're charging tanks on horseback, but they're using the horses as transport to get to the battlefield. Um, it's mm -hmm. it's effectively what we did during the vast majority of the Indian Wars. 
Um, so it is, Native, it's not as ridiculous. Native American and, wars. We have to be respectful of the people we slaughtered. Uh, yeah, my bad. Um, and and For, it's it's not this. as... Yeah, they're uh, the the dead people truly do care about the feelings. <laughs> they're really they're really upset about the the terms we use. Yeah, the the slaughtering not so much, but the uh, the, yeah. the syntax. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, so it 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 was bad because mm. they're they're riding on horseback to fight tanks dismounted with weapons that would not destroy the tanks. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, that, the, <laughs> the poles were hopeful, hopelessly overmatched. I mean, they fought valiantly in 1939 with the war. Really kicked off uh, in September of '39. Um, I mean, you give Pol give Poland credit. I mean, when you have two of the world's major powers decide to split your country in half, you're gonna have a bad time. But uh, in terms of like with the the French and the British at the time, everybody's tank development kind of focused on um, that direct infantry support. You didn't see a lot of tank on tank battle really up to that point. It never really happened in the First World War, mostly because every tank like went five miles per hour and would break down immediately. So you, you didn't have a lot of maneuvering force on force with tanks. Yeah. So a lot of the tank development was focused on um, direct infantry support for these operations. So there wasn't a lot of heavy armor. There wasn't a lot of very big guns built in onto these tanks. They had very small guns initially. And it was because the idea wasn't to punch through enemy armor. The idea was to uh, blow up pillboxes and bunkers and like dug in enemy positions, things of that nature. Do you think the... Um... Because uh, the Germans had the dry run in the the Spanish Civil War, and uh, to kind of perfect their blitzkrieg tactics, which you know, are what we talked about is uh, combined arms is all it is. Yes, yeah. blitzkrieg was just a propaganda term, um, and it, it looked really good in front of the cameras. But in reality, like ninety percent of the German army at the time was horse drawn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which was not uncommon. That was completely yeah, absolutely. Common. I mean. Um, but you know the uh, the French actually had a comparable, if not better, tank uh, called the Char B one. I'm sure I'm, mm -hmm. it's Char or something like that. But Char B one because I'm American. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> uh, the problem was is the French were still not uh, they they didn't really understand the concept of combined arms, even though they had literally used it during World War One. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the British Navy forgetting that lemons and limes cure scurvy and a hundred <laughs> years after coming up with it in the first place. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the tank was on one-on-one -on -one was better. They had mm -hmm. less of them. Sure. But they also used large tank formations and didn't have them dispersed with infantry. So yeah. they, though the, the tank pocket, which was actually under the command of, uh, de Gaulle at the time, Charles de Gaulle, um, had virtually no orders, no air support and no coordination. So they got surrounded yeah. and fucking wrecked. Yeah, that's the problem. Is, I mean, like the, it wasn't necessarily the equipment uh, advantage the Germans had. It's just the fact that they had worked on developing offensive tactics when the French, basically after the First World War, kind of focused on the defense. Um, you could see that with the creation of the Maginot Line, um, which was a complete disaster because they didn't finish producing it. Actually, Belgium didn't finish producing their portion of it, but still, like the Germans went around it. And we talk about Blitzkrieg being this like amazing and like ground breaking earth changing like development and tactics and, and like you said it's just combined arms warfare like we've been doing combined arms warfare for like thousands of years like the first time a caveman with a spear teamed up with another caveman throwing a rock like that was combined arms warfare yeah and it, it's it, it says something that you know people kind of fell for 
propaganda hook, line, and sinker um, that Goebbels was spouting off at the time, and the uh-huh. and the movie reels are spouting off at the time. That uh, and I don't know if that's equal parts stupidity or the fact that um, countries like England needed people to be afraid of them so they would help. Um, after, I think, I think after the like, Battle of France. It's definitely a combination. It's kind of hard to explain. Like we lost the battle because we suck. You know, right. it's hard to swallow that pill. So it's easier to just say, man, we got beat because the Germans are just so good at war. I mean, what they're doing was just, you know, it's all about envelopment warfare. It's what they've been doing for centuries, really. You see in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, the Austro-Prussian War, um, you know, the the Kaiser Schlacht concept of maneuvering to envelop a force and then destroy it. They just, they had tanks and they had Stuka type bombers and they had... Um, infantry you know mechanized uh, wheeled infantry moving along with the tanks to be able to quickly exploit um breakthroughs in the enemy lines and realistically it wasn't because they had better equipment it's just because they were honestly better trained and better prepared for the war i mean when you think about it the allies weren't interested in starting another war because they had just survived the worst war in human history the first world war like that was the war to end all wars and we say it now ironically but the fact of the matter was at the time everyone thought this is the worst thing that could ever happen and we can never do this again because millions and millions of lives like an entire generation of frenchmen englishmen germans just disappeared yeah and they did so it they to weren't themselves prepared. i mean absolutely i mean not just world war one based on stupid inbred habsburgs and interwining alliances <laughs> and everything but ah, those habsburgs they uh, they, uh, I mean, they. Everybody knows now, but you know, they set the st- the table for World War II because they were vindictive assholes at the end of World War One. Um, yeah, none of them had anything to fight it. for, but Germany sure did. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So basically, this phase of the war, you have the French have been knocked out for all intents and purposes, except for Charles de Gaulle causing chaos up in Britain, uh, and, and the French resistance. You know doing their thing in France, which is actually pretty significant to ruining the Germans' days on a consistent basis. Uh, and so Germany's kind of involved in North Africa now because they had to go bail out Mussolini because Mussolini wanted to rebuild the Roman Empire because he was like the closest thing we've ever had to a living Bond villain in uh, history. Mussolini is probably one of my favorite historical uh, figures and not because I like him in any way, uh, because I don't think he'll ever exist again. And it's like... He was. He had a building with his face on it. Um, oh yeah. If you it, if you haven't seen this building, you had to look it up. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was like the party headquarters in Rome, but it's literally so. Mussolini's face, like tiled in 3D all across the facade of the building, and it's horrifying. <laughs> it looks terrifying. I guess maybe Italian artisans at the time kind of sucked, or <laughs> you know they didn't exa- they couldn't exactly do a 3D draft of the thing. But mm-hmm. it it looks like something that you would see in a video game, like it, yeah, it looks like the like evil boss's temple. Like it yeah. looks like a dystopian nightmare when you're and approaching it, just, it. It's in Rome. Yeah, well, you you actually bring down the uh, the was it the Italian People's Republic or the Second Italian Empire? I don't remember. Uh, you actually have to shoot. Yeah, they had so many names. Yeah, you actually have to shoot Mussolini's head's eyes a certain amount of time to to bring it down. Um, That's the only way to make it past that level. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then coins will come out of his mouth. <laughs> oh God, it's horrifying. <laughs> I love. It's absolutely insane. And like, it, you have to believe there's never going to be that kind of a megalomaniac world leader ever again, right? You know, I, I feel like we are civil enough is the word that's become popular that this will never happen again 
It will never happen again because we are civil in our political discourse. But so the Germans <laughs> decide to do, you know, top five mistake strategically in world history. And they decide to invade the Soviet Union because if everything's going well for you in the war, you got to find a way to screw it up when you're Hitler. Yeah. He, so he decided yeah. to open the, the Hitler book to page Napoleon and like, you know, this didn't work for him. Um, but I, I feel like I can pull it off. I mean, yeah, I mean, the only people who can like conquer Russia besides Russians themselves are the Mongols. So yeah. like, clearly, clearly the Nazis had a great opportunity. So they opened up and they opened up this another front of the war with a significantly large force, like a massive, massive country. And things are going pretty swimmingly at first because it's easy to run over peasants uh, when the Soviets are completely unprepared and Stalin has completely eviscerated his officer corps because he was going on one of his little paranoid tirades, as as one yeah. does. The Soviet Red Army at the time was like the equivalent of if you took um, like a reception battalion, which is like for our for our, our non-military listeners, and there might be a couple. A reception battalion is like when you enlist. And you get sent to basic training, but there's not enough seats for you quite yet. You just have to go live in this fucking boring building for weeks or months at a time until you find a basic training class for you. But you're in uniform, you follow military regulations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Red Army at the time was a was pretty much an army wide reception battalion because all of their <laughs> leadership had been massacred and they had no yeah. weapons. <laughs> yeah, they were completely wholly unprepared for it i mean just, just completely fucking, and utterly yeah just some so randos things, in uniform yep so things went pretty swimmingly at first for the for the germans for the largest the largest invasion in human history the like led to the largest uh armored battles in history later on in the war just because the the sheer number of forces they were getting thrown to the east and uh early on in the war in the uh, eastern front the germans started to figure out that the uh, Panzer IV and Panzer III couldn't really stand up to the Soviet T-34. And they did some studies. They sent some folks east to just watch, basically, how the Soviets were murking their tanks. And what they saw was the T-34 had a couple distinct advantages. So it had a uh, larger and a larger gun in the turret. The Germans still had relatively smaller guns than the Panzer III's and the Panzer IV's. It had sloped armor, which, when you think about it, sloped armor rather than flat-facing armor uh, has a tendency to uh, better deflect incoming rounds. So instead of taking the full force, the round gets deflected in a different direction from the initial shot, as well as uh, increasing the amount of basically penetration a round has to go through, phrasing, to uh, destroy <laughs> the tank. So these are, and then it had like a, a wider track base that was more stable. So there are a lot of distinct advantages that the T 34 had. And uh, another advantage of the fact that the T-34, so it weighed, uh, weighed 26 tons, it could be produced rapidly, uh, it could move a lot faster than the German tanks, so the problem the Germans started running into is that their tanks were completely outclassed. And that, this is where the, the Germans definitely show their Achilles heel of wanting to over-engineer everything, and the Russians show why they're so good and that they can slap a couple pieces of, of you know, scrap aluminum together in a cannon, and you got a T-34. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, the T-34 was easy to produce, it was easy to operate and everything, and then the Germans took a look at this, and they got some lessons from it, and then they just sprinted in the wrong direction, because, you know, instead of thinking, hey, let's kind of upgrade the medium tank we have now, and make it maybe more stable, more simple, they decided, you know what? We need bigger. So they started producing bigger tanks, and that led to the development of the Panther and the Tiger I. So the Panther and the Tiger I 
are formidable tanks. Uh, don't get me wrong, like they are kind of the quintessential example of like the horrifying German heavy tank during the war. They're like the sort of thing that like Sherman tool. crews are horrified to see. Uh, the Panther weighed 44 tons, uh, and it had let's see, the, it had a, a 7.5 centimeter main gun. Uh, several machine guns as well. So this thing had the sloped armor that you saw in the T-34, a little bit wider base, a little more stable, but heavier. The the Tiger One, which is a personal favorite of mine just because of the, the propaganda value put all around it. They it's, made the Tiger look like the fucking king of the world in fury. Oh, um, yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. It's, it's amazing to see one of those things in person and realize just how freakishly huge they were. Yeah, I, I got to see one. Um, I don't know what the tank museum was called, but it was at Fort Knox. Um, I assume they moved it with the rest of the armor school when they committed awful, awful sacrilege. Um, <laughs> and but, moved it down to Fort Benning. Yeah. yeah. It ru- ruined the armor corps forever. Yeah. Uh, the tank is massive, um, even by modern standards. When you know, I, I spent my entire time in M1A1, I was an old tog- toggle switch tanker. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, thing's, the thing is comically large um, to an insane extent. But like the Tiger One, when you realize that this is being invented by a group of people who, you know, so many different technological like points have not been crossed yet in, in human history, but they attempted to make this fucking armored Colossus. Oh and... yeah. Like the, <laughs> the tiger weighs so 54 tons compared to, you know, the Abrams now with uh, the, the a two sep is 72 tons, roughly a little bit yeah. more, but still significant, significantly close for something that was being produced. Like, what is this? Like 30, this is, a little under 30 years since the first tanks actually were conceived. And yeah, you have a 54 yeah. tank ton, a 54 ton tank. That's the size is, of two Bradleys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's huge. It's nine feet tall. It's 20 feet long. Jesus. I mean, this thing has a huge uh, 8.8 centimeter, centimeter gun. It had a ridiculous amount of armor, like 120 millimeters of armor on its front. Like, then, this thing yeah. was. And it Mass. definitely made up for the weaknesses of the Panther. Um, the Panther, I I will say, it could have been realistically the best tank of the war um, mm-hmm. if the Germans had their shit together. Um, but the the major that's downside, a huge if of the war. <laughs> yeah, like if the if 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 you know they could get all the gas they ever needed and they could fix the mechanical issues that the Panthers had. But you know uh-huh. the, the major downside is it had virtually no side armor. But uh, yep. You know, the Tiger did not have that weakness. It had all the mechanical weaknesses, yeah. But, I mean, after seeing it and seeing what it can do, I can absolutely understand why, uh, you know, the in Fury, they made it look like like a trans like Optimus tr- Prime dropped on the battlefield and Tom Cruise peed a little in his pants. Or Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt yeah. uh, peed a little in his pants. Yeah, uh, I could see. I mean, when you think about this thing, I mean, the amount of armor was on it, the size of the gun, especially when they upgraded to have an 88 in this thing. Yeah. I mean, like, it was... <laughs> absolutely horrifying on the battlefield it had a ridiculous amount of armor compared to everybody else but the problem that germans were running into with the panther and the tiger and then later on with the tiger too was the sheer weight of this thing made it so that it was hard for it to maneuver on open terrain like if there's a little bit of marsh or bog which as we know the soviet union doesn't have any none whatsoever uh it would get bogged down and it would free like it would get stuck in the mud it would get stuck in you know any place that didn't have great stable ground and then just the sheer mechanics of it was ridiculous because for some reason i mean anybody who has owned a bmw or a mercedes knows for some reason german engineering means efficient but impossible to understand 
Right. So these things were over-engineered, and it, it took like a, a you had to have like a master's in mechanical engineering to fix the damn engine. And yeah, so this is had, yeah, and normal tank crews. I mean, you've worked with tankers, and I've been a tanker, and yep, I, we're not exactly mechanical engineers, man. Like, if we can't we, fix we, the we get tank, buy on. Yeah, yeah if, you, if you can't like fix it with a sledgehammer and some electrical tape. <laughs> or like you call the mechanics and you just pray like there's only so much that a tanker can do and, and i understand the german tankers are mythological creatures and don't get me wrong the ss panzer corps had great uniforms i mean yeah they could really stomp on, on stomp on some prisoners of war while looking fucking dapper shit but they uh, looked good i mean they completely ruined it like you can't wear all black anymore since you know the nazis ruined it that's one Thanks. of the things I have with the Navy is in the in the summertime they look like the good humor man, but in the winter they look like the <laughs> Waffen SS. <laughs> and you know, the, it speaks volumes of like how unreliable uh, these tanks are when there's so many of them were, that were captured because mm-hmm. the crew tried their best to keep them running, and uh, they eventually just had to bail out on them because they became useless and so broken down. There was no replacement parts. There was no you know, if, if the tank needed an actual overhaul outside of, like, track or road wheel changing, I'm assuming, they had to ditch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, these crews would do everything they could to try to fix these things, but without having, you know, mechanics with you at the time, without having that, like, mechanical engineering degree and, like, having read the TM to the point of memory, like, um, a lot of times they would have to abandon the tank because around this time is when... You know, the, the Western Front opens up, uh, the Allies land in Normandy, you have Brits and Americans and Canadians in France, you have the Soviet Union pushing back and effectively turning the tide against the, uh, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. So you have these heavy tanks that have more armor, heavier armament than uh, what the British, the Americans and the Soviets have on the battlefield for the most part. But the Americans, the Allies have numbers. And they're able to maneuver around and, you know, basically overwhelm these tanks. Like, it doesn't matter how much armor you have. One, there's always less armor on the back of the tank than there is on the front. Just the nature of the design. You always want to have your front slope towards expected enemy. So all it takes is you can merc a couple of Shermans, but if enough of them get around you and hit your backside, you're done for. Like, a, you know, that's what Fury illustrated actually pretty effectively was yeah. how the Shermans are able to. Essentially, you just had to try to overwhelm it, like imagine like a, a classroom of toddlers crawling all over an adult and finally bringing him down like that's kind of how tactics were against something like a tiger i fear that's how i'll one day go um, yeah, don't just, we all just swarmed by children uh and you know, like the swarm numbers game <laughs> the swarm of angry ill-tempered <laughs> toddlers no teeth um you know the numbers game is is interesting because you know the tiger one which is king shit of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. I, I will say of all the German tanks, either that or the Panther, is the the craziest design they actually make made work for yeah. the most part. Um, but there's only 1,300 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, without looking it up um, because I don't even know where to do this, and I didn't do the research. I'm willing to bet the factories in uh, Michigan put out more Shermans a month than that. Um. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> the production, I mean, you got to think about as the war goes on, you know, the bombing campaigns by the Americans, by the British are slowly wearing down the German ability to produce anything because, you know, the factories are being destroyed. Supply points are being destroyed. Uh, the mines where all the raw minerals come from, everything's getting destroyed slowly but surely and you're losing ground. 
So it's harder to produce these tanks. And for some reason, the Germans decide instead of, hey, we're going to cut down on design and go back to something that we know works, we're going to keep designing bigger and bigger shit. So the thing about the Germans over the course of the Second World War is for some reason they had this like fetish for bigger is better. And it really didn't matter if it made sense. And I think a large part of this is the fact that, I don't know, like the, the, the description of German military development over the course of the Second World War is just tiny dick syndrome. Yeah, and that, that goes for, for like, everything. They had to build the biggest battleship. They had, I mean, they didn't yep. exactly succeed in the biggest aircraft carrier because their Kriegsmarine was horseshit. You know, they mm-hmm. had to build the biggest bomber, and that failed. They had to build the biggest tank, and that was a miserable failure. And, oh, by the way, I looked it up. It was 1,000 uh, Shermans a month. So <laughs> in a month and a half, the Tiger one was outnumbered. And that is yeah. just Michigan. That's just Michigan. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's the last time in human history that my state was worth a shit. There you go. <laughs> small, small victory. <laughs> yeah, but the so like the Germans start developing bigger and bigger things. So they they came up with the uh, the Jag Tiger, the hunting tiger, which is a tank destroyer because it didn't have a, a pivoting turret. And this thing uh, has the distinction of being the heaviest armored fighting vehicle used operationally during World War II. Jesus. It had a 128 millimeter main gun. It That's weighed insane. 71 tons, so almost as much as the Abrams today. And it was like nine feet tall, eleven feet long. This thing like was now thirty-four feet long, including the gun. This thing was massive, absolutely massive. It's just like it—it it was effective because it could completely demolish anything on the battlefield. But it was so huge that it would get stuck. It would break down because the mechanics are complicated. And ultimately, weird if how it keeps just, happening. Uh, there's kind of a trend going on here, you know, like they keep building these bigger and bigger things. So it was used operationally. It was kind of effective in the sense that if you have a big, giant rolling cannon, it's going to murk a lot of stuff, but eventually it's going to get enveloped. So you had that being produced. And then we start going into more and more batshit and saying, this is my personal favorite here. This is the Sturm Tiger, oh, the man. Assault Tiger. So before we now, get into the Sturm Tiger... Uh, a thing about the Jeg Tiger, Jeg Tiger, whatever, uh, they actually equipped two full anti-tank battalions with these things. Uh-huh. Um, they were so unreliable that only 20% were lost in combat, and all the other ones were simply abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> That's superior German engineering. For some reason, the Germans have this like this weird mythos that goes along with the, the mythos of... Um, uh, Blitzkrieg is superior German engineering. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it works well, but the second it stops working, you're completely hosed because you don't know how to fix it. I mean, there, there's something to be said about, like, Soviet style, like, this is really simple and you can shove it in the mud for five years and pull it out and go and, like, shoot yeah. people in the face with it, you know? There's something to be said about that simple engineering that the peasants could build a T-34 in the factory, hop in that bad boy and roll out the battle right away. Yeah, and I mean, it's not even like one of those things that were shitting on them historically. Um, I don't know if you ever read about the Tiger Ace Otto Karius. Um, mm-hmm. He has a really good memoir, if you don't mind reading some Nazi shit, called The Tigers in the Mud. Um, <laughs> so he commanded three crazy. three companies. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like something that would be on... Uh, it means something awful uh, if you it Google it. Sounds like it. something Kurt Schlichter would write. <laughs> uh, that, that's upcoming. Um <laughs> Uh, so he committed three full companies of Jag Tigers. Um, and actually, he notes that he had a rare combat achievement of commanding 10 functioning ones at once um, and complains that the tig- the Jag Tigers were not utilized to their full potential due to uh, bad engineering, bad mechanics, uh, allied air supremacy, 
and that massive gun that made it combat effective was actually so huge that after driving it, so say you like most vehicles, you're driving to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to recalibrate the, the gun. Uh, oh, and after every five rounds, you had to That's... recalibrate it as well. Uh, Can you imagine having to hop out of the tank in the middle of an engagement? Like fucking... five rounds in, yeah. it's like, all right, get out there, boy. Yeah. Um, and the, the gun was so huge, it had to be locked in place. Otherwise, mounting brackets would be broken for accurate firing. Jeez. That um, is insane. So you're, say you're... Um, it's it's a it's a tiger hunter or it's a tank hunter. Sorry, so you're yeah. going to be fighting someone who can feasibly reach out and touch you. Um, exactly. So before you went to combat or before you started slinging rounds, you had to jump out. A member of the crew, of which there was two loaders. Um, of course. I'm assuming the guy um, actually lost rock paper scissors would be the one that'd have to do this. Um, had to jump out of the vehicle and unlock the gun before firing. That's just so crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. I mean, like, how? Who thought this design was a good idea? And I'll tell I'll tell you why they thought it was a good idea. And it's stupid and only makes sense in World War II Wehrmacht horseshit. Um, yeah. It was recorded that the 120 millimeter gun was so powerful and went through an entire house and then destroyed an American tank that was sitting behind it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, credit where due, credit where credit where this due. I mean, it's effective, but it kind of defeats the purpose if it's not practical. Yeah, it's completely. You know, it's retarded. great if you have a giant ass gun, but if it can't move to actually maneuver around enemy armor, what's the point of it being on a tank destroyer? I I don't. I mean, it, the tank destroyers hypothetically are supposed to move with the armored force or the mm-hmm. the combined arms force, but this thing, like the most of the tanks we're about to get to, was so comically misengineered and useless that they might as well just put a couple more stugs out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the sad part of the fact is that the the Yag Tiger is like the last semi-realistic thing we're going to talk about. Yeah, that's the absolute saddest part. I mean, with all of the issues that we just talked about, that was like the last effective thing of a series of designs that the Germans kept coming up with. Because as the war went on, they continued to come up with batshit and ideas. So this is the Storm Tiger, the Assault Tiger. Uh, it was built on a Tiger One chassis. And it fired a 380 millimeter rocket propelled round. <laughs> like this thing, they had taken a, uh, I think it, it was like a gun off a ship that was designed to like fire uh, death charges. So it was yes. a death charge loader and launcher. And they just stuck it in a tank. Well, uh, technically, a, um, technically an assault gun because it didn't yeah. have a pivoting turret. But this thing. It's uh, like the it, only time in World War II history the Germans actually showed that, hey, more than what, we don't have to engineer everything to do with this just for this tank. Uh, and they use, a, of all things, a depth charge launcher that they had laying yeah. around. So they, <laughs> they put this thing on there and it weighed 68 tons. It had a five man crew. This thing's 20 feet long, nine feet tall. It, uh, <laughs> like, the amount of armor on it was insane. It had 150 millimeters of armor on the front, 150 millimeters on the front of the hull. Uh, the It was a breech-loading 380-millimeter rocket and warfare, <laughs> which would fire a rocket-propelled projectile that was 4 feet 11 inches long that weighed up to 829 pounds with a maximum range of 6,000 meters, 20,000 feet, and contained an explosive charge of 276 pounds of high explosive. And this thing, you know, we've, we've talked about a little bit before, and we'll talk about it way more later as we get into the even more insane designs, is um, 
it's nothing but a resource a resource leech and um like it, its whole history was Krupp uh manufactured a, a ton of Tiger 1 hulls um to mm-hmm. be made into Tiger 1s for obvious reasons it's mostly functional and it's a fun- and it's a, a mostly working tank yeah. um and instead Hitler uh decided to send those hulls to Elkett uh, who made the Sturm Tiger so yep. these are what 19 Sturm Tigers got built these could have been 19 mm-hmm. Tiger ones um which actually would have been useful because yeah. uh these fucking monstrosities uh, were made for urban warfare. Yep. And then, you know, uh, got their first taste of urban warfare, slaughtering unarmed Jews in the pol- in the Warsaw Uprising. Yep. <laughs> and really, something you need, like, heavy armor for is when you're shooting up a bunch of Jews that have, like, bolt-action rifles. If that, yeah. If and, that. And, you know, it has two loaders, and these <laughs> these these rounds weighed, like, what, 800 pounds, something obscene yeah, like that? Yeah, 829 pounds. <laughs> and they're rocket-propelled, and, you know, they they had to go out of their way to prioritize making these comically large rounds. Um, and the, the, all the rocket technology at the time was being made by Jewish slave labor. So like even at best, um, I'm not sure how motivated the death camp workers were to, for quality. You can assume that the vast (laughs) majority of these rounds were probably not going to work as intended. Yeah, I mean, when you, you think about the Germans, like the theme, the, the tank design is kind of a, a variation on the theme of German war, like weapon development in the Second World War, where they just focus on like insane things. Like you're in the process of losing the war against the Allies, so what do we spend all our resources on? Well, we're going to build uh, missiles to launch at Britain because Hitler just wants to hit the British. Yeah. Continuously, yeah. like he builds the V1, the V2, which becomes like the foundation of space program of the United States and the Soviet Union because they're so ahead of their time and he just wants to launch explosives at the British countryside and like blow up cows. Yeah. That's what he wants to do with those things. Uh, the Germans developed the first viable jet engine for an aircraft and instead of using it for like a high speed interceptor to take down the bombers that are destroying your entire war production, Hitler wants a medium range bomber so he can still bomb the British. And this is also dumb that they actually had a lighter tank called the panzer six um Mm -hmm. the the low or i guess it translates to lion and it was canceled in favor of something even bigger (laughs) yeah they they use this thing i mean like you said they used it to slaughter jews which is a great pastime for the nazis i can understand why they're excited about that opportunity but it was also fielded at remagen uh and there's a case for one of these things fired at a group of shermans and destroyed four of them and all of the crew with one round (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what the fuck? so credit it's a, effective i mean if your enemy is you know kind enough to sit in close dispersion like they're taught not to do uh, and you get a lucky shot you can kill a lot of tanks with it but overall like this thing was insane it was meant to be used for urban operations for assault operations why so there's a storm tiger the assault tiger but and that phase of the war by the time it finally rolled out Germans weren't doing a lot of assaulting. It was more <laughs> run away and get run over by the Allies at various points of you know the map. The, the Sturm Tiger looks like. Uh, so I'm going to show my how nerdy I am. Uh, did you ever used to play? I, I have honestly no idea how old you are, but I just turned 30. Um, when I was a kid, uh, probably middle school, high school, there's this game that came out for the Game Boy Advance called Advanced Wars. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Sturm Tiger like literally looks like a tank that was in that game that you had to unlock as like a boss tank. 
And even then, I'm like, this thing looks fucking ridiculous. <laughs> the thing. It, it is actually made by the Germans. So, like, yeah, you have the Sturm Tiger. They build a few of these things. They're used at various points in the war. Realistically, a massive, massive waste of time. And strangely enough, it's kind of like the last really operational kind of tank they have. Because you mentioned the Panzer. The Panzer Seven, the Loa, the, the Lion, uh, was canceled before it went into production because they decided to focus on something even heavier. The Panzer VIII, the mouse. This is my personal favorite because it's oh, this is, fucking stupid. It's a thing of beauty, this one. I mean, they, they produced they produced two, two hulls and one, one turret. And that was all they were able to produce before the war ended. I mean, this bad boy. <laughs> and we have to point out it, it never saw combat. Um, it no. did undergo trials in late 1944, the the outcome of those trials are not noted. So we're going to assume it broke down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this thing was, it weighed 188 tons. Jesus which, Christ. Like if you try to process this more than like an Abrams with a Bradley on top of it. Yeah. And it's just oh, massive. It was 11 feet tall, 33 feet long. It had like 220 <laughs> millimeters of armor on the front of its turret which is like double what the Tiger has on the front of this, and that th- that thing is formidable to begin with. It had a 128 millimeter gun, which is bigger than what's on the Abrams today. That like, might be one of than... the biggest um, proposed direct fire tank weapons. I know the those the Russians use 125s. Um... Yeah, I mean, like so, some of the other. I think the the modern Leo uses a 120. No, no, they use a 120. Uh, I think the Challenger uses a 125. So the British main battle tank uses a 125 so uh, but those are like modern tanks that are developed yeah. in the late 90s <laughs> early 2000s like this thing was getting rolled out in 1944 and it was it was the brainchild of like ferdinand porsche who you know he created a car company but then also worked with the nazis for a bit so yeah he was uh, the he was the, the the brains behind the tiger and the panther as well um you know he's uh, not the best guy sometimes so like ferdinand porsche comes over this thing and hitler signs off on it because apparently all you needed to do to have Hitler sign off on something was just tell him this is bigger than everything else. Yeah. And he's like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. So this thing, it weighed 188 tons. It had <laughs> a top speed of 14 miles per hour was achieved during its trial. 14 uh, miles an hour. 14 miles an hour, which at the time was blazing fast, of course. Actually, not, at the, not like, really. We, it would have not at all. It would have fit in in World War One. Yeah, like that was a good cruising speed in the First World War, where everybody was just putting like tractor engines in a tank and just sending it on on its merry way. This thing was like so massive that it wouldn't be able to cross a majority of bridges. So the plan was for it to just ford rivers <laughs> or just, actually just drive submerge. The, just drive through the river. We got this. Just drive through the river. Like it was going to submerge at depths up to eight meters, so like up to twenty six feet deep. <laughs> use a snorkel. So. I mean, you have experience driving, right? Yeah, of course. And and being a driver of a tank that goes underwater is literally my idea of hell. Like that's that's the worst way for me to go because the seals are never good. No, and this is you know, granted, I was you know probably in refitted tanks from the late '80s, uh, yeah. but still, that's 40 years on these, and the rubber seals never worked. Um, and that mm. is sitting in a motor pool, occasionally going to the field. These aren't like our deployment tanks. Um, but even then, those seals never worked. It always leaked. Um, and this is a tank being built in the the you know the stress of World War II, and you know you have to 
look out back at the junkyard to see what you can build next because there's you have no resources um like i really wish i could have been in porsche's meeting with hitler for this like i'm sure like albert speer or maybe one of the other actually accomplished engineers were uh were like uh sir this is a really bad idea and porsche just kept pointing to a picture of how big it was going to be and making explosion noises with his mouth that's pretty much actually what <laughs> happened. Like, so Heinz Guderian in like one of his memoirs, Panzer Leader, he talked about uh, the meeting where they basically got the final approval from Hitler to start production of this thing. And uh, Ferdinand Porsche brought in a wooden model of the mouse and told him like all the sizes and specifications and stuff. And, you know, they, they ignore the fact that like it had this weird, uh, <laughs> completely different track and suspension design. Uh, that probably wouldn't have worked besides the fact that this thing was absolutely massive and apparently Hitler saw this like wooden mock-up of it and saw that it had a 128 millimeter gun and he said that it looked like a toy gun and wanted it to be a 150 millimeter gun like he wanted a bigger (laughs) gun to be in this thing and he wanted it to be design changed that it would actually weigh up to like 200 tons sure buddy you want a you want a 200 millimeter gun we'll put a coffee maker in there fucking schnitzel bar what else do you want like that was the thing. It's like you have this model for like the largest tank that would ever exist. Like it's technically the largest vehicle to be produced because of the simple fact that they built one and a half of these things. And when Hitler got the mock up for it, he looked at it and said, I want bigger. So that's, that's, so that's like the constant trend of all this stuff is like people will come to him with these ideas and Hitler would bless off on them, even though they're just batshit insane. <laughs> so you have you have. <clears throat> You have the mouse, the the Panzer VIII, and then we move up to this is this is a second personal favorite of mine, the the Landkreuzer P1000 Rat Rata. This thing is it, only exists in, you know, you know where this exists. Um, I think I developed this when I was in middle school or elementary school when I was too because like most people end up being tankers or armor officers. Mm-hmm. I had a lifelong obsession with tanks. I thought they were the coolest yeah. thing ever. And uh, so I had a little notebook that I would doodle in in yep. class instead of paying attention, like most people who end up enlisting when they're 17. Yeah, and, as one uh, does, yeah. yeah uh, and I would draw what I thought tanks should be. And it looks like they're, they were the dumbest designs ever. You know, it was like a fucking steamship with a turret and everything else. Yeah, I mean, like you're six, seven years old drawing, like doodling in a notebook. But the Germans came close to making your doodle a reality. Yes, and that's exactly what this looks like. Like, there's this thing is so huge that I found a um, uh, a, a diagram that has the rat, the mouse, and the tiger all lined up. Uh-huh. Um, and the mouse, if if the rat had a trunk, the mouse would comfortably <laughs> fit in it. <laughs> so, like, the rat was like this is like evil genius levels of insanity uh, for a tank design. They started developing it in June of 1942. Uh, they named it the Landkreuzer so, because it was supposed to be a land cruiser. This thing was basically what they had come up with is they were going to get the turret and the main gun from a battleship. So <laughs> it was going to mount two 280-millimeter guns, like literally the turret and main gun from a battleship. And mounted on this thing, uh, the design it was supposed to weigh a thousand tons, a thousand tons, uh, thirty-six feet tall, like one hundred and fifteen feet long, 
It had a crew of 20 proposed, as many as 41. Like it had, so it had not just like literally a battleship turret on it, but it also had a few machine guns and then flak guns for anti aircraft built in onto this thing. Like it was literally supposed to be like the Germans thought if we could get a battleship and put it on the ground, what would it look like? And they came up with this bad boy. Yeah, this is this thing weighs. It, not that it exists. It exists on paper. But if it existed, it would have weighed as much as seven adult blue whales. <laughs> and, and, and I think the uh, the guy who wins the award for the most, um, like the calmest description of how these things exist is Heinz Guderian himself. He said, quote, Hitler's fantasies sometimes shift into the gigantic. <laughs> like, if you could just understate anything more like that is that's the pick like the exact example of like a german officer just slightly understating some things just shifting to the gigantic was a two a 1000 ton land battleship which is what this design was like and the craziest part is these designs came forward hitler actually approved the damn thing he thought you know what let's actually commit resources to this and then it took albert speer to be the voice of reason to cancel the project in 1943 and yeah, albert speer is a legitimate madman like he wanted to create was it germania was yeah he's going to completely rebuild the city of berlin into this thing called germania um and the center which i, I assume was going to be the new reichstag was going to be so large that it was going to create its own weather. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah, he actually went on a test for this because Berlin is built on, like, marshy land. Um, that's yep. why it's it's really hard to build there. And uh, he knew that, but so he built this giant, um, like, pillar of concrete and just stuck it on the ground. And uh, he was going to measure how fast it sank. Um, it is still there today. That <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That is as close as Germania got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Albert Speer, who who was an architect that Hitler liked, and so Hitler made him the the minister of armaments for reasons unknown. Like he's the voice of reason that says, you know what, maybe not, maybe not the best idea this one. Yeah, and he was I an mean, architect. Not he never made weapons in his life, but even he was like, this is dumb. It was bad shit. <laughs> I mean, the thing was supposed to it was supposed to have a ground clearance of six feet so that it would be able to <laughs> ford rivers easily. I mean, you just think about something that weighs like a thousand tons and trying to maneuver that thing literally anywhere. It's I mean, it was supposed boat. to be propelled by two marine diesel engines that were used in U-boats. I like the other um, possible option was eight Daimler-Benz marine diesel engines. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally reasonable. You think maintaining one engine was a pain in the ass in the Abrams. Just think of maintaining eight 20-cylinder marine diesel engines. So clearly a batch insane. And surprisingly, this design was not actually the largest land vehicle that they were coming up with. They actually wanted to come up with another version that was essentially uh, – <laughs> essentially the idea was for it to be a self-propelled siege gun. So – the Land Cruiser P fifteen hundred Monster, mm-hmm. which nice is name. one of nice the best name. names. This this one was literally the rail guns that they used on trains because they're so massive to transport. They wanted to slap some treads on them and send them cross country. <laughs> so like, thing, it, it was eight hundred millimeter gun. gun driving down the street. It's just it was literally just a massive artillery piece that was supposed <laughs> to just roll down the street. It was supposed to weigh fifteen hundred tons. <laughs> it had a eight hundred millimeter gun. It's just like absolutely insane. <laughs> like, you know what this reminds me of? Um, I'm a fucking huge Simpson nerd. So this reminds me of the episode where Homer's cousin let him design a car. 
Oh yeah, the <laughs> they designed the Homer. It was the, <laughs> it was the biggest piece of shit. And uh, this is like, yeah, Adolf, go ahead and invent your own tank. And because uh, I mean, I would, I know Ferdinand Porsche designed most of these stupid ass things, but you know he wasn't designing these on his own. He was designing no. the, like any engineer worth his shit. And I've never driven a Porsche. I'll never be able to afford a Porsche. Um, and from everything I hear, they're they're good cars. So he obviously knew how to actually engineer things that functioned. <laughs> Either he spent the entire war tripping balls on acid or like, <laughs> you know, his brain is being eaten alive by worms or something. I, like none of this makes sense to come from him. So like that oh, makes okay. me think that more people were like, hey man, maybe you should uh, put a flat cannon on that tank. God, this is the insanity of having like flat cannons on top of a tank is it rumbles across the countryside i mean whoever it was that worked in like the armaments ministry that came up with these ideas to like have hitler approve and shift resources away from things that make sense like that guy is a hero of world war ii like there had to be like a deep agent from the oss that like <laughs> yeah. made his way in and his whole his whole purpose in life was to come up with even more batshit insane ideas to take the hitler and be like hey what if we build this instead of building more u-boats yeah what do you think about that Everybody's gathered around a table talking about war stories, and he's like, "Well, I know what I did." Just <laughs> slides a fucking bar, like the the whole diagram of the P fifteen hundred monster that he drew in a bar napkin. He's like, "I got them to green light this motherfucker." <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. So, like, basically, that's it's like the quick little walkthrough. I mean, brief overview, the briefest of overviews of like tank development for the Germans World War Two, and you know, like the biggest thing is. They kept focusing on building bigger, dumber, sexier-looking things. Don't get me wrong; some of these are sexy designs, but oh, they absolutely. were just dumb as hell. I mean, the tankers' wet dreams. Like, I, I, I'm amazed looking at this stuff. But like, the amount of resources that were being poured into them, instead of mass-producing medium tanks that were effective, like if they had actually developed the Panther to be more effective, like they probably could have been more successful on the battlefield. So, yeah, and I this... guess we can be grateful for the fact that they weren't. I mean. Yeah, and I think uh, we talked about it a little bit in the beginning. Um, I think the, I mean, who who do you think is guilty? Because um, we're coming up, I don't exactly know how long ago World War II was um, without doing the math. It's close to 100 years, you know, 90 yeah. years, something like that. Um, so we are effectively falling for German propaganda almost a century later. Um, that these tanks were magnificent. Um, they were... The, the, the the picture of of german engineering and they totally would have won the war if x or y didn't happen um you know combine these amazing designs with blitzkrieg and and the the germans were obviously the best army of of world war ii um and we're still falling Uh, for that yeah i mean so i have a theory and this is this is completely pulled out of my ass like i I don't have any research to back it up or anything but i kind of have a theory that like this idea of german military excellence was kind of built up after World War II ended, when the Ger- like Germany was split between the East and the West, you know, you, you have this country that's basically you spend the majority of the Cold War years, so like, uh, gosh, fifty years waiting for the Soviets to come pouring through the Fulda Gap, and like, you're expecting millions of Soviet soldiers to pour through. So you kind of build up this idea of German military excellence that they would be able to stand up and effectively fight against the Soviet invasion. So I think there was a lot of propaganda value to be able to say, like, hey, look how great we did in World War II. Look how awesome we are at fighting. Uh, we could probably still do it again. 
So do you think this has something to do with the, the myth of the clean Wehrmacht that was pushed uh, in creation of the Bundeswehr then? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it's just there's, there's propaganda value to being able to say how great the Germans were. And it's pretty damn annoying because even now, like, armor officers in the United States Army, like, we still worship at the altar of Guderian and uh, Rommel. And it makes very little sense because they're good, but they weren't that great. Sure. You know, like Rommel, especially like everybody says how great Rommel was. When you think about it, Rommel got his ass kicked pretty consistently. Like he got his ass kicked in Africa. And yeah, he didn't. People say Hitler didn't give him the resources he needed. But that's kind of the nature of warfare. Like you're expected to do what you can, what you have available. And he got his ass kicked by Montgomery and then later on by the Americans. Uh, he got his ass kicked in Normandy again. Uh, pretty consistently got his ass kicked up until the point that Hitler made him kill himself. Like Rommel wasn't that great in the grand scheme of things have you he ever wrote failed a couple of good so books. hard have you ever failed yeah, so yeah. hard your boss made you kill yourself he's like consistently <laughs> screwed up i mean like sure like being a less shitty nazi is good except for the fact he's still a nazi like yeah, i understand he was still like, a hitler loyalist of, for sure he but... had to do stuff to kind of survive in that regime and everything and there's kind of a tendency like you said the the clean wehrmacht uh myth to kind of whitewash things and let the Bundeswehr have kind of some legacy that wasn't tied directly to Nazism. But right. still, like these guys, you know, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, like Blitzkrieg is just combined arms warfare. It's something we've practiced for centuries. It's something that we continue to do today. I mean, we joke about how armor armor sold its soul by moving to Fort Benning. But, you know, as, as somebody who works there now who went through the Cabs career course, like I can see there's real benefit to us working closely with the infantry. How dare because you? Because realistically in battle... <laughs> We're in theory, yeah, but realistically, in operations, we're gonna work with the infantry. Like, oh yeah, tanks by themselves, like especially in urban operations. Like, you take a look at the Soviets, like that ends horribly. Oh yeah, we did uh, a whole episode on that. And yeah, the yeah. first Chechen war. <laughs> yeah, Grozny. Like, you have these tanks that are rolling around by themselves, and shockingly, the Chechens are able to completely destroy them. Uh, and you know, infantry in urban operations work well with tanks uh, because it's nice to have a heavily armored direct fire cannon blow stuff up for you so there's a lot of benefits of working together and like you said at the beginning of the episode the german army gets all this credit for being advanced and you know special weapons and great developments and really majority of the force was still riding around in horse-drawn carts and they really weren't as advanced as we were really making them out to be yeah and then you know they get the credit for you know the panther and the tiger one and, and maybe it's because um a lot of people watch shitty history channel documentaries or they play video games and in video games are always great. Like, Oh yeah. You're not going to play world of tanks and have your tiger break down on you. Um, so yeah. <laughs> that game might suck, but, uh, you know, so what do you think, uh, would have won the crown as since people were, were shit talking us yesterday. What do you think would have, uh, won the crown for the best tank of world war two? T 34 hands down. Absolutely. I mean, like, I want to say, like, the Pershing or, like, the Sherman Firefly or, like, some American tank, because obviously America produces the greatest things ever. But realistically, like, the T-34 was this perfect combination of speed, armor, and rapid production. I mean, there's something to be said about something that has a strong gun and has good armor, can move rapidly and effectively on the battlefield because it had such a wide base that it was stable on, like, the marshy, shitty Soviet terrain. And the fact that you could just punch out, like, a thousand of these things in a night. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Its degree, its design was revolutionary to the point that, um, I mean, as as obvious as it sounds now to uh, a professional armor officer and a professional armor soldier, is uh, 
sloped armor, no shit. But like mm-hmm. that was a revolutionary design that someone had to come up with and come and it, it didn't have, you know, um, a trip up or a hiccup along the way. The T-34 rolled off and immediately dominated. Um, yeah. The, the Panther was made in direct response to the T-34, which mm-hmm. you don't see that happening very often. I mean, the Sherman Firefly rolled off uh, the assembly line with the, I think it was what, a six pounder, something like that. Yeah. Um, because everybody realized the Sherman was shit. And the only thing it had going mm-hmm. for it is like, which is when you, if you go up and punch a beehive, Sherman's come out. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. there's just tons I mean, of you them. You could just like swarm all over a, a German tank. But yeah, I mean, like the T-34 is absolutely brilliant design, like you said, and it had a lot of significant advantages on the battlefield. And there's a reason why, you know, a majority of German casualties were on the Eastern Front. And it's not just because of the large number of soldiers involved in it. It's just the fact that the Soviets honestly had some really good designs, like the this kind of viewpoint is like the Germans are like the aliens landing on the caveman planet that is the Soviet Union. And they have the advanced weaponry and everything. Well, right. the Soviets had a good weaponry too, and they had a lot of people, so they had distinct advantages on the battlefield against the Germans after the initial successes of the invasion. And that, yeah, you know, that's something that people kind of discount the Soviets for. And I understand why there's no Soviet fetishization, unless there's some like weird tinkies on the left um, about World War II or you know the the Great Patriotic War they call it, um, because immediately after where they became our enemies, and then immediately after World War II, Western Germany was still our buddies, and everybody just discounts the Soviet Red Army as this like horde of peasants with no tactics other than human waves. And yeah, I mean that's what happens when you watch like Enemy of the Gates, and like that's your that's your concept of what the soviets did in the second world war like one man has a rifle the other man has a a clip of ammunition right and you just go forward and try not to get shot in the back and yeah and and same thing could have people tend to say about the japanese um but it's discounting a lot of what they did and while some of those things really did happen i mean the the soviets totally did send unarmed people into combat in very rare circumstances there totally was human wave attacks um there's definitely bonsai charges um but that's discounting like they didn't win the battle of kursk on human wave and tank no. wave tactics they didn't take berlin you know they didn't they didn't do any of these things by just flooding them in in russian corpses <laughs> and i mean that could have probably worked too but um i mean the fact of the matter is they were a better military and uh, a lot of the historical revisionism says you know if if this didn't happen, the Germans totally would have won. If they would have t- taken Stalingrad, the Germans totally would have won. And the reality of the situation is the day the Operation Barbarova- Bar- Barbarossa kicked off, the Germans had lost that war. Pretty much, yeah. Um, they, I mean, they, they were, were never opening that up the front. I mean, in a position, I mean, this is this is the historical, like, whataboutism and alternate theories that, like, uh, historians love talking about and people that don't like history just want to light themselves on fire when they hear it because... Sure. You know, you just go off the deep end. But it is interesting to think about, like, how successful the Germans were up to that point in the war. And then suddenly opening up this massive front probably before everyone was really ready for it um, because Hitler had an axe to grind with Stalin completely yeah. threw Germany under the bus in terms of being able to successful in that war. They could have probably negotiated to maintain control of mainland Europe for a significant amount of time. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's good that it happened, obviously. It's sure. good that the Germans wasted all their resources on these other tank designs because it all contributed to their ultimate defeat and failure. And, like, and, and that's why you'll never see Nazis ever again. Ever. Uh, especially not in America or in Charlottesville or as Proud Boys 
whatever the hell Proud Boys are. Why would you come up with that as your name for yourself? That's what I can't get my head around. It is based on an Aladdin stage show. <laughs> so it's, it's so this, this white supremacist group named themselves after a musical based on a movie based on brown Iranian people. Yes, that is correct. Makes perfect, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think when we come up with our paramilitary left-wing group, we can come up with something appropriately like racially confused i would prefer uh something to do with like tangle on ice possibly the lion king um <laughs> yeah we could be the be people absolutely. simbas the people um, simbas yes yeah. oh, and i think that has a lot to do with like um maybe it's because i'm older now and i'm seeing it more um but the fetishization of the third reich um is is pretty big um people like maybe it's because they're white uh maybe it's because a, a lot of americans have german blood um but uh nick who isn't here today he's at yeah. work um he like talks about it a lot um because in his reenactor circles which i always jokingly call cosplay um <laughs> they're the the german the wehrmacht whether it be wehrmacht or ss uh their mm. groups are always much bigger and they're always much more in depth. Uh, he told me a story about it was a guy who was a tank crewman for twenty something years. Um, yeah, in the United States Army, retired, and now he pretty much does that full time to the point that he has SS tattoos. He wears um, SS uniforms pretty much Holy everywhere. Shit. He SS has tattoos. Yeah, and he I think he said he had the bloods mark uh, on his armpit, and um, he also has a full operating Mark Four. Um, Panzer. Oh boy. He owns privately. And you know, there's he he also did a little bit of civil war reenacting and he said uh it's kinda comes in two camps. Is that the old guys who are generally there for the history and to sit around and drink beer, and then the young guys who you have to be suspicious of. <laughs> yeah, guys <laughs> who, always... who are way, way too excited to be wearing a swastika armband. Right, and getting away with it. And that's where I think it's kinda like soft accepted and it's bleeding in everywhere um and that's where those people gum up the situation and gum up the discussions like i can only imagine if we had a third person with us who uh was one of those dudes and he would have pointed out how you know the panther was the the best tank ever and if it wasn't for x or y or whatever they totally would have won and even though it's completely contrary to all historical evidence yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, like, even even if the Germans had, you know, not wasted their time with all these other silly designs and focused on developing, like, panthers and tigers that were, like, truly reliable, uh, more effective on the battlefield, like, realistically, the Germans didn't really have a chance over the course of the war. Like, they, they screwed it up when they invaded the Soviet Union. Uh, and I mean, there's obviously going to be lots of debates on who won the Second World War. Answer is the United States, but uh, <laughs> all other answers are wrong. Always the United States, everyone else is wrong. But realistically, the Soviet Union had a significant role in taking down Nazi Germany. And like you said, with the Cold War, the fact that the Soviets became our enemies like right away, there's not a lot of uh, acknowledgement of that fact, despite the fact that a majority, uh, we were talking about it before this episode, you said like 80% of German casualties were on the Eastern Front. Like, right. There's something to be said about the fact that the Soviets just killed a lot more Germans than everybody else. Yep. There's a reason why the Soviets rolled into Berlin and took all that territory. Like They contributed significantly to the Allied victory. And and even if the Germans never would have invaded England, or if invaded England, invaded the Soviet Union, there's something to be said they could have never actually won because the one attempt that they made to defeat Britain was a 
fucking hilarious failure in the Battle of mm-hmm. Britain. And the idea that they had before that, I believe, was called Operation Sea Lion to yeah. uh, for the uh, <laughs> the invasion was even more his like. I could have come up with something better in high school. It made no, it made no sense. Um, yeah. But that's uh, the same could be said for a lot of the shit that happened with the Soviet Union. Um, like uh, a lot of P, uh, German apologists or historical revisionists will say, well, the, they were always going to go to war. And that couldn't be further from the truth because all the way up until Barbarossa, and I think it was like two days after Barbarossa, Stalin simply didn't believe it was happening because they had yep. sent a non-aggression uh, agreement. Absolutely, and, and wanted nothing to do with it. Like, uh, well, I guess yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's our podcast. That's, we're at, uh, that's an, about an it. Plus. Yeah. Do you um, want to talk about Natsec Twitter a little bit? You want to talk about General General Abrams? Uh, yeah, your your General Abrams General story Abrams. is pretty awesome. So, so my my General Abrams story. Uh, so I tweeted. I actually changed. So my Twitter handle was at uh, Tank Captain Nemo CPT Nemo. It's because I changed it because it had my name in it at first. It was the reason the why I changed of Tom, it. Right. Yeah, it was the Gospel of Tom before that. Uh, I mean, uh, everyone still knows me as Tom, so like the whole point of it was lost, but I still <laughs> changed it, so I, my first name wasn't blatantly on there. And the reason why is because for some reason I was tweeting, and like I jokingly tweeted at him because he was following me, and he commented that he was going to come down and see me. So, you know, General Abrams, the Force Comp Commander, he's coming down at Benning. We were hosting the, uh, the Sullivan Cup, which is the best tank crew competition. So a lot of generals are coming down. He's coming down for that. And he tweeted that he wanted to see me. And me, a captain, hearing that the Force Com commander of Four Star wanted to come talk to me, I was legitimately terrified. Like, I thought, this is all over. I've had a good run in the Army. General Abrams <laughs> come down to snap my neck because I've angered him somehow. And so I didn't know that at the time, but apparently his aide reached down to Benning and was asking, like, hey, are there any uh, armor company commanders named Tom? <laughs> give me a list of the armor company commanders. So, like my brigade commander, my squadron commander, they all were asked, "What the hell is what the hell is Tom doing on Twitter?" And they had no idea. So everybody's losing their mind. They're thinking, like, you know, this this damn captain has pissed off General Abrams, and he's going to come down, and now he's going to kill him and everyone else around him because of what this captain did. Um, I see him on the last day of the the last competition, like the culminating event of the competition. Uh, my friend is one of his escorts, and she texts me and says, like, he knows. Just talk to him. Because I, <laughs> I had been hiding from him for days. Like, I had hid the second he hit the ground. Um, and I go up to talk to him. I salute. I said, hey, sir, uh, it's nice to meet you in person. And we chat for a little bit. And it turns out he just really wanted to meet me because he liked my account. <laughs> he, he really likes social media. Because General Abrams, if you don't follow his account or see what he does, he's actually one of the few generals that runs his own social media. Like he'll go on there and he'll tweet about doing, you know, some CrossFit or like meeting with people and doing PT and stuff like that. But he's also really involved. And what he was telling me is he was interested in social media, being able to like hear what people think, being able to be exposed to the thoughts of junior soldiers, junior officers, enlisted. Um, he said it was like sitting at sitting at your defect table and being able to hear what you're saying. And he gave the example of how he was interested in how people responded to the whole Air Force puppet reenlistment thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was, he was fascinated by how upset people were, and I, I told him my opinion was like, uh, uh, every, like all these all these field grades, these colonels, these one-stars are all staring at me like, what the hell is this captain doing talking to General Abrams? We're just having this chat about social media, and I told him, you know, hey, I think people weren't upset that they were punished. They were upset about the level of punishment that, like, people's careers ended because of a, a, a video for the, the, the airmen's uh, children where they reenlisted with the hand puppets. So these people have their careers just completely 
demolished and then you can be a racist Nazi and the Marine Corps be retained. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and we just had this little chat and I told him, like, hey, sir, I thought you were coming down to kill me. And he said, no, if I didn't like your account, I wouldn't follow you. And I was like, I can't fault this logic. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I, uh, that, that was my Abrams story. I know you have an Abrams story, too. I was legitimately afraid of this man for the longest time. <laughs> so I was actually, As one should be. Yeah, I mean, I got out. I was lower enlisted. You know, I had... Mm-hmm. I didn't have the greatest career, but I mean, I had an, a normal soldier's career from 2005 to 2013. Um, yeah. Deployed a handful of times, skipped out of my fair share of details. Um, uh, completely unremarkable. Other than the book that oh. I wrote, which please buy because I enjoy paying my mortgage. Um, <laughs> uh, so I was a, I guess the the term is specialist mafia, like godfather yeah. um, for the civilians who are listening who for some reason don't follow us on Twitter and have no idea what we're talking about. Um, Specialist Mafia, we are the last rank before you become a non-commissioned officer. And uh, we end up mentoring a lot of younger soldiers because we are the old people in the room who end up staying the largest amount of time around them. We live in the barracks with them. And we are generally always drunk and angry at at our lot. Incredibly salty. Just incredibly salty at all times. Bitter against the world, as as you should be as a senior specialist. Yeah. Um, And as such, I I like to use that because I completely empathize with lower enlisted. um, And as somebody who has a lot of friends and a lot of family who are now senior NCOs, I also empathize with them as well. Um, But um, yeah. uh, I had a soldier at Fort Hood send me a video of the bar- their barracks room just absolutely coated in black mold. Um, the The video didn't show his face, didn't have his name, didn't. I mean, if you've been to Fort Hood and you've been through the barracks, you know what barracks they are. Um, yeah. And um, he he asked me to post it for him uh, because he said that he he really wanted help and he's afraid to go to his NCOs and I don't blame him. Um, and you know, if you go to your NCOs, um, the non-commissioned officers about this sort of thing, they generally just tell you to quit being a bitch or clean with bleach. <laughs> and that isn't how you handle black mold. Black mold's incredibly no. dangerous to human beings. It causes cancer, mm-hmm. um, respiratory issues, probably other things I can't remember. Uh, but I was like, you know what? I, I, not that I'm well known on Twitter. I have like a thousand followers. I'm like, fuck it. I'll post it. Yeah. It blew up. U.S. Army, what the fuck oh, yeah. moments got a hold of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then it just spiraled out of my control. Um, eventually, I got, General Abrams slid into my DMs and, <laughs> and asked for details. And I said, sir, thank you for reaching out to me. I can't give you the soldier's name. I'm afraid of him getting um, you know, uh, punished for it. Um, because I had actually been in the soldier's unit. I won't say what unit it is. General Abrams yeah. knows. Um, not that he listens to my podcast. Mm. Uh, but... Um, you know, I had NCOs that knew that I was in the unit and that they had obviously gotten an email about it or something. And yeah. um, they started blowing up my Facebook um, messenger, which I really, really check. But I decided to check uh, after this thing had spiraled out of control. And yeah. uh, it said like, hey, give me the soldier's name. I just really want to help them. And like, fuck, I'm not falling for that one, man. No, I mean, clearly these guys are trying to just nail the guy because for some reason there's this backlash in the army when something hits social media like army WTF moments. The answer is not let's fix the problem. The answer is let's find who leaked it and then crucify him in front of battalion. So it never happens again. 
And uh, exactly. this same unit actually demoted me. Uh, so I'd been a corporal a handful of times, and they demoted me. <laughs> a, couple of times. Yeah. a couple of times. Uh, and uh, I had been demoted for something kind of like this, um, which I won't go into too much. But yeah, I, I was demoted for effectively whistleblowing on social media. Um, but uh, General Abrams said, hey, don't worry about it. Um, if anything ever happens to him, I'll crush whoever does it. Because um, he, yeah, cause he exactly. wants to take care of the soldiers. Yeah, I mean, credit to him. I mean, you have a lot of these leaders that say they're involved, but then you have somebody like General Abrams, who he's the commander of Force Com. He's the commander of every combatant uh, force that the United States Army has. Uh, all these divisions fall under him. And this man is reaching down because some some guy on Twitter uh, tweeted a video of how jacked up the barracks are at Hood. And everybody knows that, especially the posts in the South, uh, you know, at, in Georgia and in Texas, you have a lot of black mold because of the humidity and these buildings are so old and it's hard to fight that issue. And like you said, the majority of the time soldiers raise the issue and they're kind of told, hey, suck it up. And then, you know, just scrub at it with some bleach while the black mold enters your lungs and kills you later in life. Right. But General Abrams, like this guy <laughs> actually took the time to reach down, find out what the problem was, and very quickly mobilize a response, because I'm pretty sure a lot of assholes puckered up very quickly at three, third cor uh, three Corps yeah. and at Fort Hood to fix that problem right away. And he asked me for more information. I gave him more information. He told me what he found, which thankfully he didn't find anything as bad as what was in the video. Um, mm -hmm. So our theory is, um, my theory is, his theory is that it was an older video um, that could have absolutely been true. Um, yeah. My theory is it could have been an older video or one of his NCOs uh, saw the video first and knew what was going to happen and had him clean it the best of his abilities before yeah. it came down. And, and if either one of those is the case, it doesn't matter because the, situ the situation isn't fixed um, because there's still people living in the barracks. But, yeah. you know, he empathizes with that and he knows those are the next barracks to be replaced. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, I know the problem can be fixed immediately, but the fact that you immediately have a spotlight on it is, is a great thing. And that's that's kind of like the power of social media right now. It's really fascinating that I, I mean, I'm a captain. I've got six years in and I can interact with uh, generals. Like my first interaction with General Abrams on Twitter was I tweeted asking for advice on writing a change of command speech. Because obviously people going to a change of command wants to hear what the incoming commander has to say. Right. Uh, he actually responded. Like he responded to the tweet and gave some advice that was actually really helpful. So these these uh, leaders are involved. You can interact with them. There's several general officers that are pretty active on Twitter, you know, beyond General Abrams. And I was talking to my old squadron commander. He just recently PCS'd and he was telling me like he's fascinated by Twitter because it's like a – constant one-on-one -on -one sensing session <laughs> that's which is really accurate like you can see what people are saying all the time you have these different accounts you have you and me you have some other uh natsec accounts that are anonymous non-anonymous uh that people express how they're feeling about the army and these higher level guys are paying attention they're actually making some effort to respond to them so it's truly a fascinating uh, phenomenon and kind of reminds me that i shouldn't spend all of my time on twitter shit posting yeah it's only 90% of the time. Me too. Um, and, actually, right before we started this, uh, me and Francis from the Hell of a Way to Die podcast, if you don't listen to it, you totally should. Um, oh, yeah. We're shitposting about Ben Shapiro and uh, somehow rallied up one of his small minions to come and yell at us. Oh, good. <laughs> and it goes on top of the, the, the Nazis who want to see you and me naked. Yeah. So I told Nick about the Liftwaffe thing, and he was... 
beyond himself laughing. Like he then he fell into a wormhole of following the hashtag because he doesn't really tweet all that much, even though I told him to because you know that's how we spread our podcast and everything. Um, yeah. Uh, even and he's 21, so he should know more about this shit than I do. But <laughs> down with the young folks. I mean, he's this the Twitter. Twitter is where the content is, man. Yeah, um, I, I think but apparently everybody the content was Nazis telling us that they want to see a shirtless. So yeah, just show, not, physique. show physique, show physique, show physique. You're exactly right. It's like that meme, the bobs and vagines yes, thing. Yes, it's exactly, exactly what it was. It means. I mean, we're probably going to have some more followers now because people are going to realize we did a podcast on German tanks in World War II and we opened up with Erica. So yeah, well how that turns out we're gonna have some weird people in our twitter mentions after this and i'd have to thank nick for that one because i because of his cosplaying i uh i know what erica is and he kept showing me (laughs) memes about it um i posted one it was uh the german soldier using a a machine gun for like the first time in basic training (laughs) yeah in the background black and white footage of world war ii kicks up and like erica starts playing (laughs) (laughs) but uh, so I guess well, we're at about an hour and 20 minutes now. Uh, any parting words you'd like to say? Oh, it's a real pleasure to come on. And like I said, I mean, the biggest biggest thing about this is the Germans are vastly overrated for what they did in World War II. Their equipment was vastly overrated. Their, tech, their tactics are vastly overrated. And it's honestly a good thing because Nazis are crap and they deserve to lose. So it all worked out. Uh, it was a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Uh, really excited to be the first guest on this podcast. Hopefully, I can be like a recurring guest. Yeah, absolutely, we'll find something man. else to like rant about down the road. Just full of tanker stuff to rant about. Uh, if anyone's interested, you can follow me on Twitter at Tank Captain Nemo. It's CPT for Captain, so Tank CPT Nemo. And then you can go ahead and plug your book again, which I still need to buy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so my book is The Hooligans of Kandahar. It comes out August 19th. Uh, you can pre-order it now on um, ebook, and the physical one will be available on August 19th uh, because my publisher does not think I'm a big enough draw to pre-order paperbacks, and I don't blame them. <laughs> no, I have to, I, let's be honest. we got to agree on that Yeah, one. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be lucky if I can put a roof over my head in the next couple months. No, I'm kidding. Um, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, uh, guys think about my dog being homeless uh don't think about me um Ugh. yeah thank you for coming on um i know we we ship we've been shit posting together for it feels like months now um, yeah and i'm calling out any other anonymous netsec twitter accounts like lieutenant a lady uh to come on and talk about artillery and public affairs or whoever else that would be the history of public affairs i think she'd be really interested in talking <laughs> about that yeah um Well, thanks again, and looking forward to doing this again. Yeah, man, absolutely. Have a good one. Bye.